Hey there, it's Nick, back again for episode 2 of the Reverend History of Ulster. Check this, right? I got some feedback. Who <laughs> even knew how to listen? Well, they said they liked the first show, but asked me if I could mumble a little less and edit a little better. And I think I actually mumbled the word mumble there. But I'll bear that in mind. As I go all Dr. Dre here and announce the next episode, which is called The Bloody Nine. The learn of the past, the writers can't be asked. It's researching such a mystery. So I grab this podcast and I learn at last of Ulster's irreverent history. Kind of gets me thinking what a Dr. Dre remix of the theme song would be like, you know. So just in case you're listening to Dre or Doctor or whatever you like to be called, you have my permission. Work away. Anyway, I just have to clarify from the off that the title is neither a reference to uh, Bloody Sunday nor Bloody Friday. They're two extremely dark episodes from Ulster's extremely dark history and maybe a little too heavy for the first couple of shows i mean let's see if we can expand on a on a listener base of one you know before we go into those but right getting back to the title it's actually an allusion to logan nine fingers the bloody nine he's a character from a fantasy series called the first law trilogy some really excellent books written by joe abercrombie but uh, we'll get back to that in a minute First, I have a question, which is semi-rhetorical, what with this being, obviously, a podcast and me not being able to hear your answer, but by all means, hit me up at irreverenthistory.com and we can converse there if you wish. But I suppose you better tell you what the question is first. It's simple in form, but maybe difficult to answer. All I want to know is who is the greatest Ulsterman ever? That's it. Any ideas? The immediate list would surely include George Best, Rory McElroy, Peter Canavan, Sir David Haley, Jordan Lop, maybe, or... Let's go crazy and step outside the realm of sport for a second. And there's Liam Neeson, Seamus Heaney. Maybe some may even go all partisan and suggest the Reverend Ian Paisley or even Martin McGuinness. Others may go further back and say one of the heroes of the psalm, such as Billy McFadden, or even as far back as Cahoolan, the Hound of Ulster. All great choices, well, most of them. But what if I told you that many believe it is a man called Niall? Yep, Niall. Or Niall of the Nine Hostages to use his full anglicised name. And get this, here's the kicker. There's a decent chance you may even be related to him. Want to find out more? If so, grab a seat, strap in, and let's get cracking. So remember the character, the Bloody Nine, that we mentioned earlier? Well, he's an aging barbarian. He's a savage, ravaged by years of war. He's grown tired of murder and death, though. He wants out, he wants peace, but conflict either finds him or he finds it. Despite every attempt to escape that life, he just cannot outrun his past indiscretions. That is how I pictured Niall of the Nine Hostages. A warmonger, a lover of battle, murder, and booty. Well, we all like booty, don't we? But in you into a part, it's maybe a bit of a lazy comparison, you know, with both of them having nine in the title. I can see why you would say that and i kind of agree my mind does sometimes tend towards the obvious but my initial impression morphed the more i delved into the detail he he seems to emerge as more of an odysseus you know odysseus was a greek hero who fought at troy and was credited with devising the wooden horse he was also a killer no doubt also a great warrior but he had the smarts as well using violence when required but also not afraid to think to make use of his cunning what we have to remember, though, is that this took place way back in the 5th century and that all sorts of paws have probably been all over it, sculpting it and shaping it to suit their agenda. I mean, the O'Neills are prime candidates for this, probably spread the rumour themselves about the River Nile being named in his honour. Well, that whopper aside, let's look and see if we can get a better understanding of just who was Nile. 
Many see him as an Alexander the Great type character, or a William Wallace, a liberator, a conqueror, a champion of all things Irish, but with cultural edge, you know, and intelligence about him. Some also see him as an upstart, a raider, a thief, but it all depends on what you read and who wrote it. I probably wouldn't be alone in saying that one of the attractions of reading books or stories is that you generally get images of the characters in your head, how they look, what you think of them, how they are, but this is invariably guided by the author himself or herself. They have a power over the reader and can sway them to their line of thinking, but you know, you rarely, if at all, if ever, get the same exact interpretation at the end. An example of this is my dad. He gets so very angry about Jack Reacher, like literally always bangs on about it. I might even see if I can get a recording of him kicking off because it is hilarious, especially if he's got a bottle of wine on the go, you know. But the point is that he read the books and came to a totally different conclusion as to what Jack Reacher should look like compared to the producers of said Hollywood blockbuster. My dad always goes on about how the Jack Reacher in a book is a beast. A man who could destroy anyone could kick the bag literally out of whoever is in front of him and the Tom Cruise a wee gimp. Not my words. I actually think Tom Cruise is pretty cool, especially as Maverick, but somebody obviously thought he was good enough for the part of Jack Reacher. So just bear in mind those differences as we're discussing now. Whether he is Ulster's greatest or not is truly a personal choice. The true pronunciation of his name is, as best as I can do it, Nile Nigula. Nile of the Nine Hostages, and he lived in and around the early 5th century. He, he was the fifth son of Ogid Mugmedin and a Protestant. <laughs> right, no he's not, I'll just leave that hanging there as all the Irish scholars recover their composure. He certainly wasn't a Protestant, but he was half English, as he was the first child of Karine Chasdeb, daughter of a Saxon king, and possibly stolen by Ogid on a raid before he then married her, because that's romantic, isn't it? Ogid was already married though. Bigamy being kind of cool back then, you know, his first wife was a woman called Mong Find, which means fair-haired Mong, which sounds kind of derogatory, but probably wasn't in the parlance of their time, you know. She hated now, even before he was born. The history now starts to turn more tale than truth. Mong Find is just a bit put out by Ogid's new wife, a feeling exacerbated by Kyrene being pregnant. She finds all sorts of arduous chores for her to do in uh, in an attempt to encourage a miscarriage. I just need to add here that Ogid, he seems like a real gent, doesn't he? You know, I'll kidnap you, I'll get you up the duff, but you'll still do my dishes and mow the lawn and anything else my other wife wants you to do. Agreed? How could you resist that gem of a deal? Well, Mong's plan didn't exactly work as she may have wished. Caring had the baby, but left him alone in the wilderness, as mothers do, where a poet called Torna found him and raised him as his own. They set aside the fact that she just left him among the birds, which is a quote, you would think it was fortunate that he was found by a poet, wouldn't you? A man of literature. Surely there'll be reams and reams of writing about Niall's childhood. Well, you'd be wrong. Torna didn't write Dick. So we know nothing of Niall's childhood, save for that he returned as a late teen determined to stake a claim for the throne. And upon his return, he rescued his mother from carrying heavy pails of water which was like 15 years later. I mean, oh, how Disney lies to my kids about the life of a princess. Anyway, Mong Fine must have shat herself when she saw Niall, as surely she thought he was teddy bread, but then like a Celtic Mowgli just saunters out of the local forest where he's been living for years and causes a whole host 
of succession issues for her and her four sons. His dad, Ogid, was the ninth in a line of high kings of Ireland, but the throne didn't necessarily go to the eldest son back then. It was it was a meritocracy, so basically the best candidate got the job, almost like Alan Sugar's deciding it. So the king, well, he was unsure what to do. You know, he'd five pretty good candidates, and he just rang up his favourite druid and asked him to come up with a suitable test. Now, I can only assume that the druid took a hell of a lot of drugs as the test he stewed over for weeks involved running into a burning forge and rescuing a piece of equipment that you think best represents you and your qualities. Doesn't really leave much wiggle room there as the whole house, forge, whatever's burning down around you. But some of the brothers, they brought weapons, hammers, bellows, water, one of them even brought beer, which says what he thinks of himself. But Niall won by bringing out an anvil. It's a bit of a subjective contest, but... Even by the fact that he could lift an anvil, I mean, that wins it for me. But guess what? Our fair-haired Mong disagreed with the result. So the king, probably just to stop her nagging constantly at him, clipped the druid round the ear and demanded a better task. So after kind of taking a few more hits in his bong, I'm sure the druid decided hunting was the answer. Yet oddly, it morphed into some kind of weird water-fetching contest. Each contestant, for want of a better term, went in turn to search for water, invariably ending up at the same well. Uh, but unbeknownst to them, it was guarded by a hag. But she demands a kiss in exchange for some water. With one of the brothers, a guy called Fergus, saying that he would rather perish of first than give thee a kiss, which is a bit harsh. Like he could have said no, but that's what he was like. Anyway, all of the brothers pretty much ran off. Well, except for Niall. No, a horny little bastard. He not only kisses her, but goes for the full home run, like evidently not put off by her. Sickle of green teeth that lay in her head and reached to her ears. You know, sounds delightful, doesn't she? Well, anyway, sometime during the postcordial cigarette, it seems that she unveils her true identity as that of the maiden of Ireland, which is like a bit mean. I mean, she could have done that after the initial kiss, but, you know, Niall was happy to seal the deal anyway. But, but it kind of shows Niall's personality. He was happy to bang the hag when she was bogging, which is, you know, probably thought no one would find out about it, which... Kind of backfired as now it's quite the legend. However, transformation complete, she apparently ended up being quite the worldly. Though, I'm a little put off by her description of having plump and queenly forearms. But, you know, each of their own. Like, Evanly, she was happy with Niall showing in the sack. So she granted him 26 generations of high kings to follow in his line. And he also got some water, which is the original task. Pretty cool. Also, honourable mention here goes to Fagra, if that's pronounced properly, one of his brothers. He gets two kings in his line, presumably for slipping out the tongue of the finger or something like that. But, as we said, it's that dirty dog Nile who wins most, becoming the high king in waiting. But he doesn't have to wait too long. Yet, when his father dies, Monkfin's brother Crimthan takes the throne, possibly as a sort of self-imposed regent until Nile's older. He heads off to Scotland on a jolly, you know, maybe a bit of a celebration. Yeah, king, high king of Ireland, blah blah blah. But the kids, unbeknownst to him, usurp him almost immediately. He has to turn around, comes back a little bit pissed off. He didn't get to go on his trip, but he's convinced to negotiate by Mong Fine. At those negotiations, she's like pretty much bar lady, dishing out the drinks, gives one to Crimthon, and he's all like, nah, 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 nah. Not unless you drink it too, because you no, know, she's a bit of a sneaky bitch. So they both drink it and die. Meh, maybe she was a proper Mong after all. As her act, while taking her brother out of the picture, just paved the way for Niall's ascension to the high kingship. She practically undid her life's work and killed herself into the bargain. Now, the silver lining is that her sons were... Niall's half-brothers became local kings, with Breon and Fagra scrapping constantly over the kingship of Connacht and possibly Ulster too. But it led to the death of Breon. I mean, who'd be a brother in those days, eh? 
Stepping away from the more story-like history of the period, there, there's some really interesting info about Nile and what Ireland managed to achieve under his stewardship. He was crowned High King on the symbolic hill of Tyre in Meath in Middle Ireland. That had been the traditional site for the crowning of the High King of Ireland for millennia possibly, as on a clear day you could see parts of all four of the provinces of Ireland. One of the first major acts was to pacify the banded nation of the Ula and push the warring tribes to the further reaches of the province of Ulster, all the while amassing large swathes of land for his kinfolk. I mean, this helped to bring Ulster under his heel and Connacht became under his control too and under the control of his clan, yet he faced trouble further south and it wouldn't be an understatement to say that the kings of Munster and Leinster really didn't dig his chat. Munster was ruled by Crimthan's newly elevated son, Ogid, and Leinster was ruled by Enna, who had a son called Ogid. Well, I mean, it's such a popular name that it has to be the early Irish equivalent of Dave, but while relations were rarely less than tense, he managed to keep them on side in no small part by appealing to their greed, to their avarice, and allowing them to reap the spoils of war in exchange for their military might, which he brought to bear heavily on the island of Britain. At the time of Niall's coronation, Ireland was a, was a really big player in the region, but he was eager to expand this power base. He quite rightly saw that the easiest step to Britain would be through Ulster and into Scotland. I mean, it's a mere 40-odd miles of water separating the two, that's all, and it could be crossed by a boat in about two or three hours, and he was determined to use this to his advantage. When a couple of picks were getting up to no good and started causing trouble in his neighbourhood, Niall launched a ship and the picks got scared, and Niall invaded Scotland as far as he dared. Which, to be fair, was was most of it. He pretty much took over all of it, apart from the very far north. The Picts, however, at the time tried to attack Dalriada, which is a Gaelic kingdom. Uh, It combined the east coast of Ulster and a plantation of Irish settlers in the west coast of Scotland, which became known as Argyll or Ergoidal, the coast of the Gauls. But the Picts quite easily subjugated Scotland and its people soon fell under Niall's dominion. Now, if you've seen the fantastic and absolutely historically fully accurate movie Braveheart, there is a classic scene where Edward Longshanks, he's the king of England at the time, states that the problem with Scotland is that it's full of Scots. As I studied in Scotland, I used that line all the time. Probably too much now in hindsight, judging by the increasingly negative reactions I was getting, but there's a little slice of irony in me quoting that line. And I'll explain. Scotland at the time of Nile was called Alba, as in the BBC channel for Scots Gaelic speakers. But he didn't like that name. He decided to change it, so we went for something slightly unimaginative called Lesser Scotia after its mother country, Greater Scotia, which was another name for Ireland at the time. Now, Ireland was so named in reference to Skodo, who was the mother of Heber and Heremon, who you may remember from the first podcast, and they were possibly the source for the Red Hand legend. Uh, seamless tie in there, eh? Well, the irony that Scotland was full of Scots, but due to an aggressive plantation policy, many were actually from Ireland, and therefore Greater Scots. A name, though I struggle to say without thinking about gigawatts and DeLoreans, but there you go. Well, with Scotland slash Lesser Scotia in his back pocket, New Nile turned his attention south to the Britons. But oddly, there was already a heavyweight power incumbent there, you know. That man, the Romans, they they had introduced roads, currency, and the infamous Hadrian's Wall. It, It roughly divided Britain roughly at the modern day border and was designed to kind of exert control over the area like a declaration of Roman power and authority it was known also as the Pict Wall to kind of keep the Pictish barbarians at bay but Niall now controlled them and he turned his forces and his Scots raiders towards that wall and began upping the pressure on the Roman defences this coincided with the Roman Empire as a whole being assaulted in Europe people were just sick of their shit and 
with those higher priorities, you know, having the defend closer and closer to his homeland, the Emperor Aronius began withdrawing troops from Britain and used them on mainland Europe. This created a vacuum of power into which Niles gleefully oozed, grabbing and establishing control of much of England and Wales. It is said that he pursued the retreating Romans out of Britain, across the English Channel into Brittany and Gaul, but crucially it was at the request of the local leaders. That's modern day northern France and he was being invited in to wrestle control from the Romans, which gives us a bit of an idea as to his acclaim and reputation. Once rid of the Romans, he would return and make further incursions into the region. It was on such a raid as that that he captured a young boy who was known as Guan Sucket. Which sounds so wrong. <laughs> but I think I'm pronouncing that right. I will go with Guy and Sukat, right? But he was a Welsh national living with his Franco mother. That you, that young boy would go on to become synonymous with Ireland, snakes and churches, but Probably nowadays he's more associated with Guinness hats, leprechaun beards and getting absolutely blattered in the middle of March. He was of course St. Patrick, you know. He of the eponymous day of debauchery that obviously is the very embodiment of the message he was trying to convey as he spread his religion throughout the Emerald Isle, wasn't it? Job well done there. So now they're carving up Britain for himself, you know, territory in Europe, thriving nation in Ireland, the guy's got everything. An historian called Hutchison says no monarch carried the glory of the Irish arms further than Nile. He drove the Romans out of Caledonia and pursued them to the banks of the River Loire in Gaul. It's a pretty big deal. You know, Romans were no joke back then. Admittedly, they were in decline, but possibly because of that. But how does he keep the natives happy? How, uh, who knows how often he visits each of the lands he's annexed? He always seems about looting and pillaging somewhere new, but so just what keeps his territories in line? Why don't they rebel? One answer is that he took control of some of the territories by invite. I mean, the Saxons, for example, invited him in to attack the Romans, which... I think they regretted after when they found out he was probably worse. The French did as well, but what are the picks? And even his brothers at home, what kept them in line? You know, if, if Nazaway weren't in France or wherever, then why doesn't some sneaky wee skitter just swoop right in and take us their own? It's not as if he can get email, there's no WhatsApp. He's not getting Google alerts, you know. No, the only news he's getting is from a writer or a raven, so you could theoretically hang out trying on crowns for weeks before he even hears about it. Well, Niall is no dozer. And this is where he earns his nickname. Nicola of the Nine Hostages. Now when I hear hostages, I think of Terry Wade in Beirut in the 80s, tied to a radiator with a bag over his head, getting beaten with a plank all day or something. And I'm not saying that's how it went. Uh, I'm not saying that's accurate, but that's the image I get. It seems like the hostages in the days of Nile were more like guests, albeit with, with sinister undertones. But certainly better treated, you know, less beatings, more balls, you know, that kind of thing. And by balls, I mean like a dance in a hall type ball, so... You know, get your mind out of the gutter. Jeez, some people. But just to expand on that theme, and the theme of hostages, not of balls, is that you may have heard a small show called Game of Thrones. It's heavily filmed at some really stunning locations in Ulster, but that's beside the point. But there's a character called Theon Greyjoy. His family are from the Iron Islands, and they start an, an uprising against the king in the north, a man called Ned Stark. And unsurprisingly, Ned doesn't really take too kindly to the, the treasonous action. So after he quashes the rebellion, he takes the family Greyjoy's eldest living son, Theon. And well, actually, he was the only living son as the rest were killed in a revolt. But he takes him as a ward. And this is Ned's way of saying, right, back in your box, Greyjoy's, where the kid gets iced, you know. It's a form of control, of keeping the Greyjoy's from revolting again. You could say Niall may have inspired such a storyline as, as his hostages serve the same purpose. We don't really know how many hostages are taken from each location, but we do know that they come from nine separate territories. This includes 
some from the home provinces, so some from his brother, some from his family, in uh, Ulster, Connaught, Leinster, Munster and Meath. And Meath back then was the fifth province. And there's also some from the overseas territories, uh, that are the Picts in Scotland, the Saxons, the Roman Britons, and then the Franks. I mean, he's not messing about. It's a serious threat to the hereditary lines of these kings, of these domains. And nothing in those days was more important than legacy. Just to quickly recap here, from what we can tell, Niall was an heroic man with great cunning and the party inspire the men that he commanded. He also possessed foresight, uh, he had the ability to negotiate and showed an intelligence that complemented the violence that he could offer. He's a, he is much more than the raider and the pirate that some profess him to be. He was also loved by his men and this we discover when we hear the tale of his death. The Nile, it wasn't on good terms with the King of Leinster, as we discussed earlier. It was an old family dispute, and it was stemming from uh, a bit of a beef they had over a cow tribute. A terrible joke, yeah, okay, but that is true. It culminated in the Prince of Leinster, another Ogid, or Dave, killing the son of Niall's bard. And a bard back then was a poet. Kind of a guy would have entertained Niall in his court, basically an ancient TV of sorts. Niall already annoyed that Enna, who was the king of Ulster, wouldn't give him his guys, took exception to the slaying of his TV son and invaded the province. Enna, all big balls at a distance, absolutely shot himself and handed over his son Ogard. Ogard was chained to a stone and was like left to be slain. Nine warriors of high repute were sent to kill him, but Ogard, as the story goes, broke his bounds and massacred all nine men. He didn't get the Nile though. Niall captured him again, but respecting his badassery, Niall decided not to kill him, but to expel him to Alba or, or Scotland. And that's that's where that story ends, because it's a good idea not to murder your mortal enemies. That's a fact. Anyway, Niall goes about his kingly duties, raiding provinces, generally dicking about, taking stuff that isn't his, and then he heads in a raid at the River Loire. He was just kind of chilling in a forest, and an arrow pierced right through his chest. I mean, do you have any idea, any clue, any inkling as to who shot the arrow? Yeah, I mean, I feel almost patronising telling you this. But yeah, it was Ogun, or Dave, Prince of Leinster. He travelled with Niall's forces, crazily enough, and took his chance of revenge. Just lying in wait for the High King of Ireland by an oak tree, as you do. But as is one to many of the early tales, and it's kind of annoying, the information goes cold. And all we know is that Niall's aggrieved men, like, secured his body and had to fight seven rolling battles to try and get their king and his body back to his final resting place, which is rumoured to be in a cave near the hill of Tara. It's an heroic action, but just how heroic we don't know. We don't know anything about the battles or what happened to the assassin. We just have to trust rumour and legend that he was buried near where he was crowned. To add to this uncertainty, some people even suggest that he may have been killed in Scotland. In Alba, rather in Alba, Alba meaning the Alps, the high hills, which is, I don't think that's too near the Loire, but sure. And the spot on the River Loire where he was felled is still called the Ford of Nile, apparently. Now, I tried to find that in Google Maps, but couldn't find it. But there's, it says that in about six or seven different books, so. I mean, because either way, he's dead. It was the early 5th century, and he'd been the High King of Ireland for 27 years. You might be thinking so. He was a king, bit of an empire builder. Like the Raider too, but how does that make him Ulster's greatest? To answer that, we need to look at his legacy. Now, he died a pagan, but ironically, he had a massive hand in the religionization of Ireland, if that's even a word. Because it obviously, he introduced St. Patrick to Ireland. St. Patrick came back around 430, which was a couple of years after Niall died. But he brought him there originally. That was Gwan Socket, if you remember. <laughs> As a king, uh, Niall 
he took the prosperous country and he, he improved it. He vastly increased his land base and its dominion. He chased the Romans out of Britain, which is no mean feat, and he pursued them into Western Europe, possibly as far as the aforementioned Alps. But where he stands out for me is that he was one of the most fecund men ever to have lived. Now, answers in a postcard if you know what fecund means. Urban Dictionary says different, but it means highly fertile. I mean, we all know someone who just seems to need to look at a girl and she gets pregnant. You know, the guy with 10 kids who still seems to have more money than you do. Well, that was Niall. Niall was of that ilk. He had two wives and had at least 12 kids. And it was the beginning of an empire. And an empire that lasted almost 1,200 years. With the O'Neills finally only losing their grip on power in Ulster. When Hugh O'Neill, who was Earl of Tyrone, and Rory O'Donnell, who was the first Earl of Tyconnell, hastily boarded a boat in Loxwilly and departed in Ireland forever. And that, that became known as the Flight of the Earls way back in 1607. They coincidentally, that act paved the way for the Ulster plantations when many Scots moved to Ulster. And within their number were the Border Reavers, who just so happened to be the topic of podcast number three. Slick, eh? Mm. Well, the Flight of the Earls was just a reduction in power and influence in the O'Neills, but their progeny still lived on. You know, in 2006, Trinity College Dublin published a study showing a hotspot in the genetic makeup of Northwest Ireland, whereby over 20% of males carry Niles haplotype, which is haplogroup R1B1C7 brackets M222 brackets, and I am reading that, don't really know what that means. It basically says that 20% of the same Y chromosome as Nile. That number lowers to 1 in 12 when you spread across the whole island. But it's still a huge number. I mean, it puts the O'Neill dynasty a second only to that of Genghis Khan, who was a pretty big deal back in the day. The Ireland didn't adopt surnames until the 10th century, or, but his kids were known as the MacNeil and the O'Neill, which became O'Neill. And it literally means descendants of Nile. So the Neil is of Nile. I mean, it's surmised that he has over 3 million relations worldwide. And this includes around 15% of men in Western and Central Scotland and 1 in 50 New Yorkers who have European roots. Now, the study also mentions one O'Neill chieftain who died in 1423. Now, get this. He had 18 sons with 10 different women and counted 59 grandsons in his male line alone. I mean, maybe he's the greatest, is he? You know, just 10 women. If you can survive that, you would be the greatest. Now, in 2009, RTE, an Irish television station, they commissioned a documentary called The Blood of the Irish. It was really good. Totally recommended. Two-parter. Great stuff. During that programme, they tested the DNA of a man they suspected may have the O'Neill blood in him. Now, he wasn't O'Neill by name, as obviously throughout the years, that name's been diluted and incorporates many other surnames now under that umbrella, such as O'Doherty, O'Boyle, Devlin, McKay, just to name a few there. But this was a, a man, an Ulster singer called Daniel O'Donnell. Now, if you're not familiar with him, he's the kind of guy that gets your granny wet, you know? He's regarded as the Irish Cliff Richard. Nice, clean, wholesome, well, until Cliff got arrested. Now, they don't really use that analogy anymore, but you get my point. Anyway, they tested his DNA, and lo and behold, he had the royal blood flowing in his veins. What a twist, eh? I was in the edge of personally. Could this famous old folk singer possibly get embarrassed in front of the nation by not having said DNA? No. Not going to happen, no matter how much I wanted it to. Personally, I would have chosen differently. And it just so happens that the current managers of both the Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland football teams have the same illustrious surname as Clan O'Neill. They are Michael and Martin O'Neill. No relation. Or are they? When you take into account all of Niall's achievements, he does seem like quite the boss, doesn't he? You can understand why he's held aloft by 
so many as a true champion of Ireland. Some they revere, possibly even idolise. Some even go as far as to try and use his repute as inspiration towards promoting, say, United Ireland. Throwback to the days when Ireland ruled this part of the globe. It's an interesting point, but it's slightly misguided, as it has to be remembered, that yeah, he was an Osterman. Sure, he was an Irishman, but also a Briton and a royal Briton at that, as his mother was like a Saxon princess. I think that irony may have bypassed some people, but you also remember that he was an O'Neill, and I don't really want to tar three million descendants with this brush, but I will. I mean, as discussed in previous podcasts, the O'Neills are notorious spoof merchants, constantly rewriting history their way, but all victors do that. And in that, we can include both the Irish and the British. I mean, the Irish side, aided by the O'Neills wanting to preserve their family name and legacy, also may have inflated Niall's story, showcasing a hero, while the British side maybe didn't want the man of his ilk to be so prominent, to be thought of so highly, and maybe tried to besmirch his name, leading the reports of him being a savage, a vicious warlord, you know, a vagabond. So I guess the big question is what constitutes a hero to you? Is it someone that can rally a crowd, can get you off your seat, that can inspire you to achieve things you didn't think possible? Someone who can bring tears to your eyes, laughter to your belly, or maybe just someone who can achieve things that you can't, that can live their lives the way you want to live yours? Again, it's all in the eye of the beholder. No one can tell you who your hero is, who the greatest of Ulster is. But I hope that I've given you another option by presenting Niall Noigilla or Niall of the Nine hostages. The last week we ended with an Ulster rugby battle cry called Stand Up for the Ulsterman. It's an anthem you can hear belching out of the stands at Ravenhill or the Kingspan as it's now known to some. It's a song that gets the blood flowing, the temperature rising, and hopefully that resonates with the players in the pitch, you're both rousing the home team and discouraging the away side. After all, that's what the songs are for, isn't it? Well, this week, we're going to end with a track called The O'Neill's March. It's a well-known bit of fiddly day from the most famous of Ireland's clans. I mean, they even have their own theme song. I told you, didn't I? The O'Neill's are PR savvy. But for all we know, this could be his actual pre-battle jam. There he is, legs and hands shaking with adrenaline, ready to go. Listen to the drums and the whistles, sharpened spear in hand, ready to spill some blood in the battlefield. Sounds good to me. Anyway, before I get carried away, enjoy the tune. I'll catch you later. Gah!